When Lynchburg residents opened their Sunday morning newspapers on March 25, 1934, the headline extending clear across the front page read, 14 dead, 70 hurt in Holocaust. In that morning's newspaper were several stories about a fire, a fire that would eventually claim the lives of at least 19 men, all of them displaced from their homes and families during the Great Depression. The story of what happened to these men in the cold early morning hours of March 24, 1934, was told in newspapers across the U.S. and Canada. The red flames of death swept through a federal transient relief bureau before dawn today, and 14 lonely wanderers perished in the raging inferno. 75 others, whites and Negroes, were either burned or hurt as they leaped to the street from upper windows as the flames, starting from gravy boiling over a hot stove, swept through the former furniture store with almost incredible speed. The bodies, some of them charred apparently beyond hope of recognition, were carried to two Lynchburg undertaking establishments, while the injured were carried to two hospitals in every available ambulance, hearse, truck, and private car. Grease boiling over on a hot stove was blamed for the fire, the worst remembered in Lynchburg's history. William Rash, the cook, said he had begun preparing breakfast for the estimated 200 occupants of the building when the grease boiled over on the stove and quickly set fire to the building. The Transient Bureau was located at the corner of Church and 12th Street, behind what is now the Lynchburg Visitor Center. It was one of many such places opened by the federal government during the Great Depression. At transient bureaus, men, and sometimes women, could find hot meals and a place to sleep while they looked for work in the area. One of those men was Frank Wells of Spartanburg, South Carolina. Not much is known about Frank, who was one of about 100 African Americans staying at Lynchburg's transient bureau when the fire broke out. A search of the 1930 U.S. Census reveals a 29-year-old black male named Frank Wells who was a convict in Spartanburg, South Carolina. No other personal information is listed. Perhaps when Frank got out of jail, he hit the road looking for work and a fresh start. One can only imagine what it was like for Frank and the other men who lived at the Transient Bureau. You see, for some, they ain't want to work. They ain't want to do nothing at all, but not me. I get angry, well, maybe mostly sad when I hear the word tramp. I know what it means. I ain't ignorant, but that ain't me. I work, but sometimes there ain't no work. Sometimes you got to hop on that train, see where it leads you. Sometimes you got to get what you can from the sweat of your back. Then there ain't nothing else to sweat over. These days, these days, everybody won't work, but ain't nobody got the coin. They ain't even got the bread. I heard that even the men in suits up in New York been throwing themselves out of windows because they some market crash and the coin dry up. Now, I ain't never got enough coin to lose to get that upset, but they must have had a hell of a lot of... Uh, excuse my words. Uh, to be upset enough to jump out a nice window like that. Hmm. Men in fancy suits, jumping out of them fancy windows, onto them fancy sidewalks, like the building was on fire. 
At the time of the fire, Frank was one of about 190 men staying at Lynchburg's Transient Bureau. It's been reported that the building was vastly overcrowded, operating at about twice its capacity. White men were housed in one section and African-Americans in another. When the out-of-control fire shot up from the kitchen through an abandoned elevator shaft, complete chaos ensued. Little did they know, as smoke and fire swept through the building, how many would be killed or injured. In a report to the Associated Press, Lynchburg resident P.R. Pittman described what he saw from the window of his apartment. I live right across the street from the Transient Bureau. My room is on the second floor above the Blue Mountain Cafe. And the first that I knew of the fire was about five o'clock this morning when I heard a crash of glass and the mingled shouts and screams of the men. I jumped from my bed to the window and saw the whole upper part of the building across the street enveloped in flames with smoke belching in clouds from the roof and around the windows. The corner window nearest me had been broken in the crash of glass which awakened me. And just as I got to the window, I saw a man dive out head first. He made a grab for the telephone cable which runs above the sidewalk close to the building, but his shoulder hit it instead. The impact threw him back against the brick wall of the building, and from there he plunged head first to the sidewalk. I heard him moan, Lord, have mercy on me, just after he fell. But just then, two others leaped from the window, both of them landing on the first man. I guess that finished him, because he never moved again. In the meantime, a dozen or more others had crowded to the one window, and they seemed to be fighting and screaming like maniacs, all trying to get out at one time. I saw three men climb out to the narrow cornice and edged themselves along the front of the next building down to the alley, away from the blaze and heat of the building. One was pushed off to the street below by those behind him. I think both of his legs were broken in the fall, as he seemed unable to get back to his feet. I lost sight of him after that in the crushing and excitement of the others. Those who managed to follow the cornice as far as the alley jumped across and caught the telephone cable with their hands and then swung safely over to the telephone pole and down to the ground. By the time the fire department arrived, there must have been between 35 and 40 men laying helpless on the street, all of them shouting and yelling for help. Hardly any of them had on more than their underclothes, and I could see that many of them had received terribly fractured legs and backs as they landed. Others appeared to be burnt, and nearly all of them were bleeding from one or more wounds. I have never seen a more terrifying sight in my life, and I don't think I'll ever get over the effects of it. I am a partial cripple myself, and there was very little I could have done to help. But even if I could have done anything, I was too horrified for the first five or ten minutes to do anything but look. One of the men P.R. Pittman saw leap from the windows could have been Frank Wells. 
According to official records, Frank suffered a broken tibia while trying to escape the blaze, the sort of injury one might sustain while jumping from a second-story window. That night, I, I remember snowing all day. I ain't get cold easy. So I lay down in my bunk like every other night. Some kind of pork stock stew cooking. I can tell someone had a good day and they bringing some hog around for everybody. But then something else make its way up the old shaft. Can't tell what it is at first. Hard to say. You cook with wood, but, but it ain't the same smell. And he always burned the grease. He always got to put water on it every week. But this week, this is something else. Then I hear yelling. I hear, get out, get out, get out. I hear it. So I run to the window. I see all the, the men on the bottom floor. Dozens of men must have been a hundred of us packed in that place. I seen them running into the street below. Some got burned, some still burning. But by the time I hear fire, I, I already see the burns, the smoke just start pouring out of that shaft through the doors. They say, get out, get out, but, but the fire is in the stairs. There ain't no way to get out. Some other men start to panic in it. <laughs> they see the window and they start throwing the chairs. <laughs> Can't see nothing no more, but I can hear the crashing. The screams, <laughs> men throwing themselves out of the window down to the snowy street. <laughs> I can't smell nothing no more. <laughs> nothing. But the smoke make me blind. The smoke make me drown. <laughs> I ain't got no coin to lose. But I still gotta jump. So I crawl over to the window over the broken glass and over the men that already stopped breathing. And I drag myself up to the sill and look out. I think about all the places I've been and all the things I've seen. And I see the hill city for the last time. And for a second, through all the ash and smoke, I smell the James River and the mountain laurel cutting through the cold night breeze. And I jump. In the days after the fire, telegrams and letters poured into Lynchburg from all over the country with people anxiously seeking news about fathers, sons, and brothers. Among the sad stories was that of James Marshall Roberts, a former Lynchburg resident who had set to wandering a few years before. Roberts had come back to Lynchburg unannounced to see his daughter, but before going to see her, he spent one night, March 24, 1934, at the Transient Bureau. His daughter, Mrs. Aubrey Grubbs, found out that her father was in town when she saw his name listed among the dead. 
The Transient Bureau fire was the deadliest fire in Lynchburg's history. Depending on the source, anywhere from 18 to 22 men perished in the fire, the youngest of which was 14 or 15 years old. Most of the dead were sent home for burial. A few were not. They included six African-American men. One was Frank Wells. According to his death certificate, Frank held on to life for about a week after the fire. He died on April 1st, 1934. His cause of death was listed as second degree burns of body, face, arms, and legs with the contributing cause of fracture of the left tibia, likely sustained in a leap from the Transient Bureau's upper story. On the death certificate, Frank's age was estimated at about 35. Next to occupation, birthplace, and mother's and father's names were written the same two words, not known. Frank was likely buried in a potter's field at what was then called the Methodist Cemetery, now Old City Cemetery. Exactly where is unknown. Two days after the fire, there was a bit of good news. A cat, one of three cats known for catching mice at the Bureau, had been found alive. Transients who lived through the Great Fire look with something akin to respect upon one of their fellow survivors, a little brown cat. The cat was one of three cats that caught the Bureau mice. They were pets of the men. When the fire broke out in the dormitory Saturday, claiming 17 lives, nobody thought much about the cats. All of Sunday, there was the excitement of providing quarters for the human survivors, taking care of the suffering at the hospital, trying to find the relatives of the dead. Then yesterday, men went over to the bureau to see if some of the groceries in the kitchen could be salvaged. Off in one corner of the dark basement, they heard weak, pitiful cries. They began a search, and up in a corner of the rafters, they found the little brown cat. It was suffering for want of food and water, but apparently it hadn't moved after climbing up there for safety from the flames and smoke 48 hours before. It was carried across the street to the Salvation Army Citadel, where the men fed it and it became an immediate pet. Nobody knows what happened to the other two cats. American Evolution, Virginia to America, 1619 to 2019, celebrates the 400-year history of the Commonwealth of Virginia through public events, legacy projects, and initiatives like this podcast. American Evolution commemorates the people and historical events that occurred in Virginia and continue to shape who we are in the Commonwealth today. For more information about the American Evolution Celebration, visit AmericanEvolution2019.com. To learn more about the Little Did They Know podcast and for photos, extras, and other information relating to today's episode, visit LittleDidTheyKnow.com.